O Lord, teach thy people to love thy house, best of all dwellings, thy scriptures, best of all books, thy sacraments, best of all gifts, the communion of saints, best of all company, and that we may, as one family and in one place, give thanks and adore thy glory. Help us to keep always thy day, the first of days, holy unto thee, our maker, our resurrection, and our life. God blessed forever. Amen. Well, welcome back. We are in an ongoing study of 2 Timothy, and we are going to pick up today at 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 14 through 19. So if you have your Bibles, you want to open those to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 14 through 19. Let's just go ahead and read through these verses, and then we'll come back and set the stage. Paul, writing to Timothy, says, Remind them of these things. The them, of course, is the church. Uh, Timothy, of course, at this point is a pastor. He's pastoring the church in Ephesus. And so Paul is just giving him instructions as a young man, a young man to whom he is ultimately going to pass on his ministry. And he says, Remind them, remind the believers of these things, and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. But God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal, the Lord knows those who are His. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. We said that as Paul was preparing Timothy for this awesome responsibility that was going to be his, the responsibility of leading the church in the years to come, he was giving him some final instructions. And last week we looked at some of those instructions where Paul charged Timothy to remind the church not to engage in trivial matters, um, matters that have the potential to divide the church but ought not to divide the church. That's what he was talking about in verse 14. He says, remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good but only ruins the hearers. He says, don't get engaged in these debates that have the potential to divide the church. We said that Paul acknowledges the fact that as soldiers of Christ, and that's one of the images that he'll come back to again and again throughout his epistles, he said you have to recognize that there are those times when we are being assaulted. And what the enemy wants to do more than anything else is he wants to engage us in a two-front war. He wants to come at us from the outside, but at the same time he wants to infiltrate our ranks, bring about division within the Christian community, have people battling over little things, trivial matters, so that they neglect the real issues. And we talked about this last week. Paul says, don't let that happen. Don't get engaged in those debates. And we talked about the fact that there have been churches that are divided over trivial matters. Now, when I say trivial matters, I'm not saying that they're not worthy of debate. There are lots of things in the life of the church we're always striving for doctrinal purity. But we have to recognize the fact that there are issues over which Good Christians, Bible-believing Christians, nevertheless disagree. 
And we talked about the fact that Luther and Ulrich Zwingli almost destroyed the Protestant Reformation over the issue of the sacraments. Remember I told you the story that when those two met, Zwingli insisted upon a memorial view of the Eucharist. Jesus, after all, said, do this in memory of me, in my remembrance. And Luther, on the other hand, was insisting, no, 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 the sacrament is much more than that because Jesus said what? This is my body. And on that particular occasion, Luther came to meet with Zwingli to sort of hammer out their differences. And when Luther got there, he pulled out a piece of chalk and he wrote in Latin on the table between the two of them, this is my body. And every time Zwingli tried it to speak or even say anything or present his side of the case, Luther would interrupt him and point to those words on the table. And because of that, the Protestant Reformation almost broke apart and almost fell apart over something as trivial as, is this the Lord's body or are we doing this in remembrance? Especially in light of the fact that Jesus had both of those things. I said, I've always liked what C.S. Lewis had to say about the sacrament. He said, Jesus said, take and eat it, not take and understand it. <laughs> but Luther was a stubborn man. Now, he was a great man. He was one of my heroes, but he was a stubborn man. But they were engaging, you see, in battles over trivial matters Matters which Christians can agree to disagree on. And so Paul warned Timothy about these second-order issues. Don't get involved in these trivial matters. Don't forget where the real battle is. But while Paul certainly warned Timothy about engaging in debates over trivial matters, second-order matters, Paul nevertheless acknowledges that there are some issues in the life of the church that are of a first-order importance. They are so significant that they are not only worthy of debate, but they are actually worthy of division. So there are some matters that we should not get engaged in. As Christians, this is just the enemy's way of infiltrating our ranks and dividing us so that he can conquer us. But there are other issues that we need to be aware of are so significant that they are worthy of debate and they are worthy of division. And as much as we want and long for unity in the life of the church, there cannot be unity, and I want you to hear me very clearly on this, there cannot be unity without truth. If you have unity and there is no truth, let me tell you something, it is a very vulnerable unity and it is really nothing more than a facade. And so that's what Paul goes on to address in these verses that we have before us today. Having warned Timothy about not engaging or quarreling about words, he then goes on to talk about irreverent babble that he says leads people into more and more ungodliness. A talk, he said, that will spread like gangrene. Among them Hymenaeus and Philetus who have swerved from the truth. Uh, in the years following the war between the states, the Civil War, a whole new industry developed in America, an industry of prosthetic limbs. And it was because of the terrible wounds that were inflicted as a consequence of the weaponry that was used in the 1860s. Rifled weaponry with large caliber, low velocity bullets that when they struck a body had a tendency to 
spread out and splinter bones and shatter them. And oftentimes, doctors didn't know what to do about this because what they discovered was that if they would simply remove the bullet, uh, the wound would fester and eventually gangrene would set in and this would poison not only that particular part of the body, but eventually it had the potential to kill the entire person. Now, this was long before uh, Louis Pasteur's ideas really began to take on uh, uh, fashion, at least within American medicine. He was still doing his work over there in Europe, but many people didn't understand, understand germ theory at this point. And Jacob Lister, it's really quite tragic, Jacob Lister would begin to write about uh, the work that he was doing in antiseptics in 1867. And of course, our Civil War ended in 1865. If he had written about that just two years before, perhaps hundreds of thousands of men would have survived the war, and many others would have been able to save their, their limbs. But as you can see with this picture up here on the screen, this is a young man who was a double amputee because that was the only thing that doctors knew how to do in order to save a patient in those days. When gangrene began to set in, the only thing that you could do to save the person was to cut off the limb, the diseased portion of the body. And as I said, a whole industry arose in America in the post-war years, an industry of prosthetic limbs. Well, Paul says that is exactly what this kind of talk can do. This talk that has to do with first-order matters these issues that involve a swerving from the truth. He says what will happen is that a kind of spiritual gangrene will set in in the life of the church. And he said when it does, it can destroy the faith. And so Paul warns us about this spiritual gangrene. So today I want to talk a little bit before we move on about dealing with first-order matters. Last week we dealt with those second-order matters and not dividing over trivial matters, but now we have to deal with the first-order problems. Uh, Paul mentions one in particular here. He mentions two people, Harmonius and Philetus, who he says in verse 18, have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. Now, the question that should be in your minds at this point is, well, how do I determine between the two? How do I know what is a first-order matter, a matter that is worth debating and dividing over, and a second-order matter that is worthy of debate but not worthy of division? How do I know the difference between the two? Well, I'm going to try to give you a simple rule of thumb. In the year 325, the church gathered at what was known as the Council of Nicaea. And the result is what we call the Nicene Creed. The church in the year 325 was beset by all kinds of heresies, all kinds of attacks, attacks, as I said, from without, and attacks from within. And the church realized that it needed to get together in council, get all of the leaders of the church together, and hammer out a statement of what is the basic requirements of Christian faith. The result of which was the Nicene Creed. They said this is the bare minimum of what must be believed. It's not the only thing, but it's the bare minimum, the bare requirements that are necessary in order for you to be a Christian. And ever since that point, we've been reciting the Creed. We do it every Sunday. I believe in what? God the Father Almighty, the creator of the heavens and the earth. 
That's the first article of the creed. The second article of the creed deals with who? The person of Jesus Christ, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, crucified, dead, and buried. On the third day, rose again. And he will come again to judge the quick and the dead, or the living and the dead. The third article of the faith deals with what? The Holy Spirit. And I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. And the fourth article of the creed deals with what? The church. The one holy Catholic and apostolic church. So these fathers at the Council of Nicaea said, at the bare minimum, this is what it means to be a Christian. So if you want to know what is a first order matter, it is anything that has to do with the creed. That's an easy way of figuring it out. An issue that is not only worthy of debate, that is worthy of division, is anything that has to do with the article of the creed. So anything that has to do with the person of God the Father, the creator of the heavens and the earth. Obviously, there are people who may deny a belief in, in God. Well, they obviously cannot be Christians. Now, you say, well, why would they even claim to be Christians? Well, actually, there are. Because what they're actually claiming is that they follow the Christian ethic of love one another. But actually, the church father said, that does not make you a Christian. We'll come to that in a moment. So anything that has to do with the creeds would be considered a first-order issue. I would also say that anything that has to do with the issue of salvation has to do with a first-order matter. Anything that has to do with our eternal destiny. Why? Because we're told that Jesus Christ came into the world for one purpose, to save sinners. So anything that has to do with the person and work of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, anything that has to do with our eternal destiny, our salvation, these are first-order issues. Over these, we cannot have debate. And if there is debate, there may be division. And sometimes that division is necessary. We can debate all kinds of other issues, but as Christians, we cannot debate this issue. What does that mean for our good friends over there at the Unitarian Church? Well, it means, obviously, that they are not Christians. That's not means to say that they're not nice people. It just means, by the standard of the church since the year 325, you cannot be a Christian and not believe in the Trinity. And to be a Unitarian means that you deny a belief in what? The triune nature of the Godhead. So we would say that's an issue over which we can debate, and that's an issue over which we must sometimes divide. That does not mean that they're not nice people. It does not mean that you can't be friends with them. It does not mean that you can't go to a cocktail party. It just means that they're not Christians. And this is the sort of thing that Paul says you cannot allow to exist in the life of the church. If you are soft on these issues, he said, it will infect the life of the church with a spiritual gangrene, and that gangrene will kill the life of the church. So if that sort of thing begins to infect the life of the church, how do we deal with it? How do we deal with it? Well, Paul tells us that we deal with it in two ways. The first thing he says is we avoid it. Look at verses 16 and 17. He said, but avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already 
happened. So you avoid it. Uh, the Greek literally means swerve around it. By the way, this is how the scripture tells us we are to avoid temptation. Do you ever notice when we say the Lord's Prayer, we say what? Lead us not into temptation. How are you supposed to deal with temptation? Flee it. It's not a case where you say, well, no, I'm just going to try my best. If you're an alcoholic, you don't say, well, I'm going to go into the bar and all I'm going to have is a Coca-Cola. You are being what? Led into temptation. This is what the scripture incidentally means by the expression, the evil day. Ever heard that expression in the New Testament? Avoid the evil day. What, what's the evil day? Let me tell you what the evil day is. The evil day is when your desire and your opportunity meet. All right? We all have a desire from time to time to sin. All right? We all have a desire to do certain things that we're not supposed to do. But we don't always have the opportunity. There are other occasions when we have the opportunity to sin, but we really don't have the desire. The evil day is when the desire and the opportunity meet. And when that happens, you're finished. And that's why the scripture encourages us to do what? Flee temptation. Because if you think you're going to be able to go in there and handle it yourself, you are sadly mistaken. Now, there will be those occasions when you have the inclination and the opportunity and you weren't looking for it. And the good news is the scripture says in those moments, God will give you an out. He will give you the means of escape. But we must never think, we must never think that we can handle these situations on our own. And so we are encouraged to flee temptation. And Paul says the same thing when it comes to this kind of irreverent babble, that kind of babble that would seek to undermine the life of the church. You cannot engage it. You avoid it. Now what happens if it's already there? What Paul is telling us here is you need to be proactive. You need to guard against this sort of thing. You can't allow that sort of thing to enter into the life of the church. And it does sometimes. Sometimes we want to be generous. And so we allow that sort of thing to come into the life of the church. We don't take a stand against it. And what we find is that it is a slow fade. Our love of Christ becomes a slow fade. But even if we are standing on the ramparts, even if we are doing what Paul tells Timothy to do, to guard the good deposit... And nevertheless, because the enemy is wily, we find that this kind of heretical teaching finds its way into the life of the church. What are we supposed to do with it at that point? Well, what do you do with gangrene? You don't ignore it. <laughs> you, you try everything you can to avoid gangrene setting in. But once it sets in, what do you do with it? Well, you don't ignore it. You have to cut it out. You have to cut it out. And Jesus makes this point very clear. If you have your Bibles with you, just keep your finger there in 2 Timothy and turn to Matthew chapter 18 for just a moment. These are great passages for all of those who think that Jesus is sort of meek and mild, Casper milk toast. 
Here's what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 18, verse 15. He says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. Now, how did the Jews regard the Gentiles? As unclean, as cut off from the covenant of God. Jesus goes on in verse 18 to say, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth of anything in my name, it will be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. So Jesus says if there's a problem between believers, they are to try to settle it. If they can't settle it, what happens? Well, they are to take witnesses if you've been wronged. If this person will not listen to witnesses, then you take it before the church. And if they will not listen to the authority and the discipline of the church, what happens? You cut it off. Paul says the same thing in 1 Corinthians, incidentally. I'll turn, if you will, to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 13. Paul was writing to the Corinthian church, a church that had all kinds of problems, one of the most corrupt churches in the ancient world, and Paul writes this. He says, it's actually reported that there is a sexual immorality among you and a kind which is not tolerated even among the pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. There's the language. Be removed from among you. Verse 9, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of a brother if he is actually guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reveler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what, I have, what do I have to do with judging outsiders? It is not those inside the church whom you are to judge. God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Now, Paul, of course, is writing to a church. He said, I'm not talking about the world out there. We don't have any control over the world. In fact, we're, we are here to save the world. And those kinds of people are out there in the world, and we can't do anything about them. I'm talking, he says, about those within the church who are living as though they are not Christians. Now, I want you to understand, Paul is not saying that anybody who sins has to be cut off from the life of the church, or we would have a very small congregation next week. <laughs> what Paul is saying is any person whose life is characterized by these things, who have embraced that kind of lifestyle, these people need to be cut off from the life of the church. Why? Because otherwise, it will become a spiritual gangrene that will infect the whole body. So how are we to deal with heresy on these first-order issues? On the second-order issues, we can debate, but we cannot divide. On the first-order issues, Paul is very clear. We need to debate, and sometimes we need to divide. At the very least, we need to avoid heresy, be proactive, but if it does infiltrate the life of the church, we have no choice but to do what? To 
cut it out, lest it bring dissension, disease, and death. Now, I just want to ask you a question. I don't want to see a show of hands. How many of you are thinking, gee, that's, that's kind of harsh. That, that, that's kind of tough. My goodness, aren't we supposed to be loving? Aren't we supposed to be compassionate? Aren't we supposed to be merciful? And he's talking about avoiding this sort of thing and cutting people out. Doesn't sound very Christian, does it? Well, I want you to remember two things. First of all, what Paul is talking about, what Jesus is talking about, is saving the body by sometimes having to sever the limb. But that does not mean that Paul or Jesus are unconcerned with the severed limb. There is a difference, my friends, between punishment and discipline. It may look the same to outward eyes, but punishment sometimes can just be that. It can be punitive, designed to inflict pain on somebody who's done something wrong. Whereas discipline is designed to do what? It may be painful, but it's designed to correct and build up. Now, anybody that's ever had children understands the difference. The child will call it punishment. We call it discipline, don't we? And the whole purpose of the discipline is to do what? To correct, to train this person in righteousness to help them grow to be the kind of man or woman that God intended them to be. There's a great passage in one of Paul's letters where he talks about when somebody does something wrong to you, you do kindness to them in the hopes that you will heap burning coals upon their heads. You remember that passage? Now, what do you think that means? Well, many people say, oh, well, it just means that when they treat you terrible, you treat them nice. In the end, God's going to get them. He's gonna heap burning coals on their heads. Yeah, God. That's what we're thinking. That's not what the passage means at all. In the ancient world, as a sign of repentance, as a sign of your sorrow for your sin, people would put on sackcloth and ashes. And they would also take a pan of red-hot coals and place it on their head as a sign of repentance, as a sign that they were sorry for their sins. So when we are told to be kind to those who persecute us in the hopes that they will heap burning coals on their head, it's not meant so that they get theirs. It's in the hope that they will recognize the error of their ways and what? Repent and return to the Lord. That is always the ultimate goal. And sometimes it is necessary to do this. I think one of the problems we face in the church today is that we don't oftentimes exercise discipline in the life of the community of faith. And perhaps if we had, we would not be in the situation that we are in right now. So we need to understand that there is a difference between punishment and discipline. But Paul gives Timothy one final word of encouragement. He says in verse 19, you should not be surprised. That's what he says. He said, you should not be surprised that there is dissension. He said, you need to recognize we live in a broken and fallen word, and there will be dissension. 
even in the life of the community of faith. But he goes on, but God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal, the Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. In other words, you do your part, be loving, be compassionate, exercise discipline if necessary, but even if that does not work, and even if your best efforts seem to be coming to naught, do not despair. Why? He says, because in the end, the Lord knows those who are his, and God will sort it out. There's a great passage from the Old Testament, a story that many people are not familiar with in the book of Numbers. It's not a book that most people generally sit down and say, I'm going to read the book of Numbers today. <laughs> but in the book of Numbers, there is the story about two families that led a revolt against Moses during the wilderness wanderings. And um, they tried to deal with these two families, but it didn't work. And in the end, Moses did what? He took it to the Lord. And the Lord dealt with it. He said, you are to separate yourself. This is the destruction of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. He said, you are to separate the people of Israel from these three families. Separate them completely. And so Moses had the whole people of Israel withdraw, and these three families were left by themselves. And at that moment, the earth opened and swallowed them whole. Families and all of their destruction. Now, that's simply a way of saying, in the end, it's up to the Lord. Our job is to be faithful. Our job is to guard the good deposit. If an illness, a gangrene, a spiritual gangrene on first order matters begins to infect the life of the church, we deal with it. And even if we cannot resolve the problem or smite the world right on our own, in the end, trust that the Lord will take care of it. A few final instructions. Avoid quarreling. Lead by example. Do your homework. That's what Paul says. Study the word of the Lord. Rightly handle the truth of God and leave the rest to God. And if you do that, he said, you will be an approved workman of the Lord. Now, I intended last week to get through everything that I said last week and all of that. But today, we pick up here. So before we move on to verses 20 through 26, let me just pause and see if there are any questions about that, because that's pretty heavy stuff. Bill. Right. It wasn't the Lord's resurrection. Hymenaeus and Philetus were basically arguing that there would be no resurrection of the dead at the end of the age. Now, of course, this is an important thing to Paul because one of the things he says in 1 Corinthians is that Jesus, by his resurrection, was the first fruits of those who had fallen asleep. One of the things that we say as Christians, one of the things that we profess a belief in in the, in, in the creed every Sunday is, and we believe that he will come again to judge the living and the dead, and we believe in the resurrection at the end of the age. Some to eternal life, some to eternal damnation. But that's one of the things that we believe in. Well, basically what these two were saying was that that's never going to happen. It's already happened. It's a spiritual rather than a bodily or physical resurrection. And so Paul was saying that's a major heresy in the life of the church because it undermines what happened on Easter. 
Okay, well, let's talk a little bit about 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 20 through 26. I've got about 10 minutes, and I think I can get through a good portion of this. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 20 through 26. Paul goes on to say this to Timothy. After having talked about this spiritual gangrene and the necessity of cutting it out, discipline versus punishment, he goes on now to talk about our vocation as Christian people. And this is what he says. Now, in a great house... There are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. Paul is saying, Timothy, I want you to understand why this is important. It's because the Christian life, the Christian life is about being a vessel fit for God's use. Do you understand that's what the Christian life is all about? That you have been saved, if you're a believer, you have been saved from something, but you have been saved for something. To be a vessel fit for God's use. You know, too many people have a misunderstanding of what Christianity is. Too many people think that the whole purpose of Christian faith is to get your ticket punched and go to heaven when you die. Isn't that what it is? It's a form of escapism. I need to know Jesus Christ so that I don't end up in hell. I've always said I've never known a single person who wants to go to hell even out of a sense of curiosity. So if the only thing I need to do is believe in Jesus Christ, well, hey, I'm in. And we fail to realize that actually the purpose is not simply to get our ticket punched. The purpose is to be a fit vessel for God's use here on earth. Here on earth. Now, that's not to say that you don't get to go to heaven. But that's not the ultimate goal. And by the way, that's not the ultimate destination. But that's a whole other lecture. I think it's important for us to understand what Christianity is and what Christianity is not. Every time I teach the confirmation class, I emphasize this. If you ask many people today what Christianity is, they're probably going to tell you, well, Christianity is one of the great religions of the world, one of the great monotheistic religions of the world, along with Islam and Judaism, and then there's Christianity. And you say, well, it's true, Christianity is a religion in, 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 in a sense, but at its heart, at its core, what would you say Christianity is? If you really press people, they're probably going to say one of three things. Well, if you're going to press me to be specific, I would probably tell you that Christianity, at its heart, is a creed. It's a statement of beliefs. It's a profession of faith. Well, there's no doubt about the fact, my friends, that Christianity certainly has a creed. It has a statement of belief. We just talked about it here. Talked about the Nicene Creed. We said those beliefs are what? First order matters. Well, let me tell you something. It is possible to believe the creed to believe all the articles of the creed without reservation, to stand up on Sunday and say the words of the Nicene or the Apostles' Creed without crossing your fingers and still miss the heart of Christianity. Did you know that? Well, now somebody else might say, well, if it's not a creed, then I suppose Christianity is a code of conduct. You know, the golden rule. Do unto others as you would what? Have them do unto you. Love your neighbor. That, that, that's what it means to be a Christian, to do works of service, 
to have compassion, to love one another. Well, is that part of Christianity? Of course it is. Some of Jesus' final words to his disciples at the Last Supper were these, a new commandment I give you, that you what? Love one another. What's the old song say? They will know that you are Christians by your love. It's true. But are you aware that it's possible to be a kind, compassionate, generous person and still miss the heart of Christianity? Somebody might say, well, all right. If Christianity is not a creed, it's heart, it's essence. If it's not merely a code of conduct, then I suppose Christianity is sort of a cult. And I use cult here in the old sense, a collection of religious ceremonies. That's, that's what it means to be a Christian, is to follow a, a whole series of rules and regulations and to go to religious ceremonies. And certainly as Anglicans, we've got plenty of them, don't we? We've got Holy Eucharist and morning prayer. We've got Holy Eucharist, right one and right two. We've got morning prayer, right one and right two. We've got even, evening prayer. We've got even song. We've got Compline. You name it, we've got a service for almost anything. And many people are very faithful in their religious observances. If the church doors are open, they are there. And furthermore, they have been coming to the church, what? For decades. Their families, for generations sometimes. And, and furthermore, they have been baptized. They've been confirmed by a bishop in apostolic succession. And they would say, I'm a Christian. Now, I'm going to be the first one to tell you all of those things are important. All of those things are of value. All of those things have significance in the life of the church. But I want you to understand that you can have all of those things and still not be a Christian. In fact, I would go so far as to say that it is possible to have all of that up there on the screen. To be orthodox in your theology and in your belief to be faithful in your church attendance, and to be generous and compassionate in your life and still not be a Christian. And still miss the heart of the Christian faith. How about that? So come back next week. <laughs> no, I won't do that to you. Let me just finish it up for just one second. I'm going to give you an example of somebody who was all of those things but still missed the heart of Christianity. It's somebody who was associated with the city of Charleston at one point. He was one of the most famous ministers of his day, and his name was John Wesley. Wesley had grown up in the church. His father was a priest in the Church of England. His mother was a well-known spiritual advisor. In an age when people did not seek out women for that sort of thing, they nevertheless sought out Mrs. Wesley. He was a child of the rectory. He was raised to know and to love the things of God. He was very orthodox in his theology. He believed the creed. He believed the, all the articles of religion. It seemed natural that what he would do with his life is follow in his father's footsteps, and so that's what he decided to do. He went off to Oxford University and trained to become a priest. And while he was there at Oxford, he founded a club. There were lots of clubs in Oxford at those days, like fraternities today, and there were lots of clubs in those days, and he founded his own club. 
It's called the Holy Club. <laughs> How many of you would have signed up for the Holy Club? You know, I mean, there's the chess club and there's all the Holy Club. I could tell you from my days in college, the Holy Club would have been the last one. You want to talk about avoiding things, I would have avoided the Holy Club. How much fun do you think they had? He was orthodox in his theology. Do you know that he actually memorized the entire book of Psalms? He started the Holy Club. He never missed church. And while he was there in Oxford, he started a ministry to the down and outers, to the poor and to the destitute in an age when most people ignored them. He even began a ministry in Bedlam, in the insane asylums of London. He had it all. He graduated with highest honors from Oxford, was ordained by the Bishop of Oxford, and sent off to America to convert the heathen. And evidently they thought a pretty good place to find heathen was Savannah, Georgia, because that's where he landed and that's where he started. And he founded the Mother Church of the Diocese of Georgia down there, Christ Church. And great things were expected of John Wesley, and he was a complete, abject, Failure. He got into trouble with a young lady who she thought he was leading her on and was going to propose, and he didn't do it, and she went off and married somebody else, and when she presented herself the next Sunday for Holy Communion, he excommunicated her. They sued him for libel, and because it was the state church in those days, you could get away with that. He had to flee Georgia. And he came here to Charleston. And the rector of St. Philip's didn't know what to do with him either, and so he kind of scooted him along, and he went back to England. And on one of his transatlantic journeys, he encountered a group of Moravians, and they were in awe of his knowledge of how much he knew, his knowledge of the Scriptures, his Orthodox faith, but they recognized there was something missing. And at one point, in a conversation with one of those Moravians, he confessed that they had a joy that he didn't have. And one of them said they thought that the problem with Wesley was that he knew a great deal about God, but he didn't know God. He knew all about Christ, all about God the Father, all about God the Holy Spirit, all about the Scriptures, but he didn't know Christ. Until one night, just in despair, wandering through the Aldersgate section of London, he wandered into a little Moravian chapel where he heard a man reading from Martin Luther's commentary on the preface to the Epistle to the Romans, and he said, as I listened to those words and really examined my own life, for the first time I felt my heart strangely warmed. Ever had that strange warming of the heart? I'm not asking you if your theology is correct and proper. I hope it is. It's important. I do hope that you're generous and you're kind because that's important. We have the highest ethic, the ethic of love. And I certainly hope that you are faithful in your church attendance and are known to the treasurer. <laughs> but the real question is, have you had that strange warming of the heart? Because at its heart, Christianity is not so much about religion as it is about relationship. It's about having a personal 
relationship with Jesus Christ. It's about walking with him, being with him. I love that image. It's not any great piece of artwork, but it captures it so well. It's the story of the Emmaus disciples who walked with Jesus, and when he vanished from their sight, they turned to one another and they said, did our hearts not burn within us when he walked with us along the way and opened the scriptures to us? Have your hearts ever burned? Have you ever had that strange warming of the heart? Something that passes from a mere knowledge of into a relationship with. Because brothers and sisters, that's what it means to be a Christian. And all the rest of it comes along naturally as a consequence. If you've never had that strange warming of the heart, I want you to come and see me or see one of the other clergy. It may be a case that you know a great deal about Jesus Christ, but you've never really come to know him, to walk with him, to have a relationship with him, the intimacy that is the heart of the Christian life. And if you've never had that, there's no shame in it. Don't be a churchgoer anymore. Be a Christian. Come to us. It would be my greatest pleasure to introduce you to the Savior. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks and praise for the life of the church. We know the church is sometimes, Lord, beset by all kinds of trouble. That's what Martin Luther said. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us. And yet we know that when we have a personal relationship with your son, Jesus Christ, we can weather any storm. We can see the heresy before it comes. And when it comes, we can have the courage and the strength and the love to deal with it. But that relationship is key. So, Lord Jesus, we pray that if there be any here today who do not have that, who've never experienced what Wesley experienced, that night of despair in Aldersgate, that you would cause them to come and seek you. We are told that whoever seeks finds, whoever knocks, the door will be open to unto them. And to all who ask, you give the gift of eternal life. Come, Lord Jesus, and fill our hearts this day. For it's in your name we pray. Amen. Oh,